Hi, I'm Helen Avery with the Green Finance Institute, and you're listening to our podcast, Green is the New Finance. In this episode, I sit down for a fireside chat with Nigel Wilson, Chief Executive of Legal and General, to talk about how pension funds and innovative pools of finance can be used to invest in local economies, create jobs, and support a net zero transition. I think we all agree we need an investment-led recovery. You know, productivity has been very poor in America. It's been very poor in Britain for quite a long time right now. And we both massively underinvested. And what we're doing is investing in new real assets that create new real jobs that pay real wages. And it's meant to result in a better solution all round. Hello and a very warm welcome to you today. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, Nigel Wilson. Um, Just over a year ago, I had the pleasure of travelling around the UK with Legal and General and seeing some of the city regeneration projects they were financing in places like Salford and Manchester, as well as their investments in energy efficient modular homes and fusion energy and electric vehicle charging points. And I was really struck at how LNG had filled a much needed gap providing impact investment at the scale and duration that we need. And it was all born of Nigel's vision of inclusive capitalism. So not just about investing in green and creating jobs, which themselves are fantastic, um, but also about ensuring that pension fund holders like you and me are invested in what will be the projects and companies of the future. So a democratization of this huge green investment opportunity that we're facing right now. So let's get Nigel on. So Nigel, thank you so much for joining us. A very warm welcome to you. I'm very pleased to be here. (laughs) There's so much I want to talk about today. I wanted to look at the power of pension funds in the sustainability agenda, ensuring a just transition, the importance of local investment and partnership, but maybe to sort of dive in, but also frame up why we're speaking today. Um, It's because of Legal and General's mission for its different pots of investment, you know, more than one trillion pounds, one point one trillion or one point three trillion pounds, um, and that that mission is is framed in this ethos of inclusive capitalism. So, you know, maybe we'll go into what those different pots of investments are supporting. Um, but perhaps to start, can you just give us a bit of an outline of what is inclusive capitalism? What does it look like? How is that born? Yeah, it's it's funny. Part you know, if we said we're supporters of exclusive capitalism, people say, "Oh, that's a terrible thing to support." And I, and I guess it's sort of slightly proved by contradiction is that you want to support something that's inclusive. And it's inclusive for people, our customers, because we want to give them great value uh, from financial services products and great uh, resilience from financial services products. It's uh, critical from a society point of view because um, we want to deliver economically and socially useful uh, solutions to society, not just economically important, but also socially uh, important. It's important from an investment point of view. I think we all agree we need an investment-led recovery. You know, productivity has been very poor in America. It's been very poor in Britain for quite a long time right now. And we both massively underinvested in areas like like infrastructure, in all forms of uh, infrastructure. And we haven't really uh, developed a proper investment-led recovery, which is driven by productivity changes. And we think we want to do the right thing for the right reasons and deliver the right outcome. And what we're doing is investing in new real assets that create new real jobs that pay real wages to uh, 
to everyone at a, at a societal level. And it's meant to result in a better solution all round rather than just a, an exclusive solution where you know, the 1% do incredibly well and the others, 99%, maybe not so well. Right. So it's this ethos of all the work that you do at LNG has this mission of ensuring it's, as you say, creating um, real economy outcomes, real jobs, real skills that deliver real wages, um, and also investment returns that are good for everyone. Yes, yes. I mean, we've had, you know, 10 years of of 10% EPS growth, DPS growth, dividend growth, and uh, an ROE approaching 20%. So it's a it's a win-win-win all round, we think. I know you, um, when we've spoken before, you've been very passionate about making this distinction that finance, as you say, is about real economy outcomes and not an industry that's um, uh, perhaps out of touch with working communities in Britain, with you know the working man and woman in Britain. I don't know if you can sort of share a bit of, uh, more about how that that feeling, a bit more about your own background and how it sort of played a role in this inclusive capitalism ethos. Sure, I mean, I you know I grew up on a council estate. You know, it, part of my life I lived in you know two bedroom house where I shared shared a bedroom with my sisters. Uh, but what I had was I attended a, a, a brilliant school. I had great teachers, great mentors. And I got lucky all my life in that actually at pivotal moments in my life, people gave me great advice and inputs and mentored me and taking my children back to where I grew up. I realized that the person growing up in the house that I lived in has got zero chance of, of being me, uh, given the changes that have happened to you know, grassroots education, to uh, social mobility, to opportunities in general. And uh, we'd had a lack of investment on a huge scale in lots of places around the UK, um, perhaps with the exception of London. However, even in London, we have some of the most deprived areas of the UK. And I felt as a company, uh, Legal and General should do something about that by, as it's now called, levelling up and build back better. We've been on that journey for a while, but um, you know, we thought we could make a difference. And, and to your point, you know, the wealth gap is going to be worse than before the pandemic, um, so we think. Um, we've got net zero commitments we have to reach, and we hear a lot about this transition to net zero being a fair one. But how how does the private sector ensure that that transition to net zero is inclusive? Can you share any examples of how you're marrying the two, this upward social mobility or job creation along with greening of the economy yeah it's it's what i get asked a lot and i'll give some practical examples of that i think the first one is um, modular housing you know we we built an enormous factory in north of england that builds uh manufactures uh, modular housing it's epc a rated and uh we have a goal across all of our our six housing divisions that uh, we want to be net zero from an operating point of view before 2030 and it's obviously created lots of local jobs lots of apprenticeship jobs and it feeds into affordable housing in in the uk we've still got over a million maybe a million and a quarter people on the housing lists the second area i'd talk a little bit about is things like podpoint which is our ev charging business you know we, we know that needs to be brought out on a national scale um we've partnered with edf to build that uh, across the uh, uk and that obviously results in um greater stimulus for uh, EV cars. And um, an- another example is retrofitting houses, you know, which is, we've not been successful in so far. This is a great example of 
good government policy. We know we need to retrofit 20 or 25 million houses in Britain at an average cost of 20 to 40,000 pounds. So it's a 500 billion to a trillion pound in industry. We're investigating how we participate in, in, in that. But we need you know, good policy, good regulation, good finance to all come together with an operating model that's a mass job creator in what will be you know, very valuable changes to our society. And those are all different, very practical examples that we're doing to implement inclusive capitalism. How do you embed the net zero transition in with, as you say, as you say job creation? Do we need better KPIs that, that track jobs and um, track social mobility upwards? I mean, I, I wondered what you do at LNG, and I'm sort of just asking this. Yeah, no, it is about, you know, you've got to measure what you manage. Um, and that measurement is, is, is very important. And we wouldn't get a mandate from our investors if we just entered into a whole bunch of loss-making ventures. We have set very practical goals around achieving net zero, and we're managing our carbon emissions every year and trying to you know, reduce them on aggregate by circa 5% per annum right now. But we we obsessively manage and measure GDP or GDP per capita, but there's all these other measures which are all incredibly relevant too, perhaps never more so than right now, where we realise health is wealth at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the different pots then of capital that you're using to invest. Um, you mentioned or sort of alluded to the the sort of catalytic capital, but I want to start it by looking at the the sort of lion's share that when people think of LNG, they typically think of you, you know, as the largest manager of corporate pension funds in the UK. So, you know, we had uh, Richard Curtis on at the end of last year talking about the power of pensions, and that's something you've evangelised too in a slightly different way. This ability of pension funds to match these long-term liabilities that we face as society. I think Richard and yourself have made the right point there, is that we have we're very long liabilities in the world. Pension liabilities, climate liabilities, insurance liabilities. And I think really a, a lot of you know social and exclusion liabilities that people are falling behind and we have to find mechanisms of catching up. And we're very short of, of assets. You know, we can bid up the price of old assets or we can invest in new assets. And the advantage that we have as a firm is we can pool large amounts of these liabilities together and invest in large assets to back those liabilities. We're not a bank. A bank has liquidity issues and maturity transformation issues. We're trying to match the the long-term maturity of these liabilities with appropriate assets. And we don't need the liquidity because it's illiquid on on both both sides and that was really the insight to 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 this which was actually so why don't we invest in long-term assets and really look at the business instead of on a you know very technical one-year var model which is used in way too much regulation at the moment but looking at you know 20 30 40 year uh, scenarios and really trying to make a difference to people's lives by not just buying government securities, which, as you know, pay nothing, but actually investing in real assets that really make a difference and that give people, we think over time, we'll make pensions sexy because people will be looking on their phone to have a look at, actually, what am I investing in? What am I investing in my local area? What, What new businesses have I been involved in? What new startups am I involved in? What new technology companies? What companies that are, are investing, that are, you know, uh, become social transformers and you can choose all of that and we'll have a menu of investment opportunities in, in years to come which allow people much greater control over their own 
pensions. Mm. Well, there's two things I want to pick up. One is that pensions will be sexy, which I love. I think that's an ambition that we should totally have. And we'll talk about some of the sexy things that actually you're investing in, um, in a bit. And the other, this, um, and I've heard you talk about it before, this idea that you can um, look in your community or neighbourhood and see that your pension fund is invested in that, I don't know whether it's a wind farm or solar farm or a local business or is a um, modular housing factory? No, I think that's on the, absolutely on the cards. The technology exists there right now. We just have to integrate it into all of the other different systems that we've got. So let's sort of break it down a bit so it's a bit clearer for people who maybe aren't familiar with legal and general you talked about real assets so you have legal and general investment management um, that has more than 1.3 trillion pounds in assets Um, that does invest in you know as you mentioned government bonds and stocks but then there is a portion of it that's that's dedicated to real assets yes i mean right right across the group we have different pots of money that we can invest in different, different things we can play both the principal role of directly investing in it ourselves off our principal balance sheet and the agency role where we invest for for customers and often a combination of both because you need risk capital and we because we have that at scale and we're, we're I won't say begging but trying to get the government and our regulators to agree that we need much more diversity in that in the types of things we can invest in and so that we we can get people to have in their pension funds some of these assets that you and I have been talking about. Those assets, a lot of them, are really private assets right now and tend to be owned by high net worth individuals or very specific funds, which the mass public doesn't really have access to. So we're sort of democratizing investment at the same time. I'll take Oxford as an example, you know, trying to develop startups and scale-ups in and around Oxford, but there's inadequate space, you know, compared to MIT and Harvard and Stanford uh, in America. So we have an ambitious four billion pound plan for Oxford. And we're, we, you know, we started on a couple of years ago and the, we're building the biggest new building in Oxford ever, uh, right, right now, the life and mind building for the, for the students. And the great synergy is that, you know, the engineers of today in, in living and working, creating businesses in an, and scientists in in Oxford will be paying the pensions of the engineers of the past from Rolls-Royce. And it is a wonderful, wonderful synergy that we're creating assets right now which will feed into other people's pensions in, in the future. And it is this light bulb moment, really, where people are always looking for foreign direct investment and championing it. But actually, there's literally hundreds of billions of pounds of money hanging around in the UK, which isn't being efficiently deployed within inclusive capitalism. Mm. You touched on policy that could help um, redirect some sort of this large scale money, especially on the pension fund side, into um, local infrastructure and sort of the inclusive capitalism model. Um, What is holding back pension funds, do you think, from making that transition to to nature positive net zero portfolios i think just there's two things really there's some very small pieces of legislation which are required and we we then need to empower trustees that they're allowed to kind of recommend to the staff or whoever's in the pension scheme that they should invest in these types of assets or encouraged by the regulator to, to do so because too much money is actually held in cash in the uk and it isn't in these real long-term investments and cash does no good to anybody the banks don't want it because they don't make any money off it any anymore and it's just a cost to them and people want assets that 
produce genuine long-term returns. I'll give you two examples. In the default fund, most mm-hmm. people, even one of my friends who won the Nobel Prize for economics, you know, day one he was at the university, ticked the middle box, which said default fund of the, of the five or six different options he has. And 80, 80 to 90% of us just put the money in the default fund. So we can either modify the default fund and actually as the French do, and 20% of it goes to social investing, uh, or we can actually highlight some of these other funds in the way that we communicate to to pensioners. And at the moment, they're not really on the front page. If you look at it, you might get them on the eighth or ninth page of, of, of options because they're all too small right now. They won't make a, mm. make a difference. But the thing about compounding over the years, it, it means things grow big very quickly. And if we start on this journey in five or 10 years time, we'll have much bigger industries. Take the venture capital industry in the UK. It's tiny in comparison to America. And therefore, you know, we're not scaling up enough of our businesses, which is what I talked about earlier. If everyone put 3% of their pension fund into venture capital, we'd soon have a, you know, a world leading industry in the UK. And we know the UK is brilliant at startups, but it's pretty rubbish at scale-ups. Part of the reason it's rubbish at scale-ups is the entrepreneurs spend 50% of their time rushing around trying to find the money. And this is a very inefficient way of running your running your business. And we need a much better system. And again, using the power of pensions allows us to do that. On the catalytic funding, you know, we talked about you have um, LGEM, which is a little, um, am I right to say, a little lower risk appetite because it's people's pension funds and <laughs> fiduciary responsibility. And then you mentioned your balance sheet that you have, LNG Capital, so LGC, that itself has um, £8 billion of the firm's own balance sheet that you invest. Can you talk a little more about that? Was that what's invested in Oxford that you mentioned? Are there any other sort of emerging technologies or sectors you can share? Yeah, no, it invests in all the startups, really. It, it, it is the principal investor in startups. Once they get bigger, then the likelihood is that they'll go into Elgin. And Elgin mm. is the investor at an industrial scale. And so you know, one's got 8 billion, one's got 1.2 tr- trillion. And we have we have about 75 billion of principal balance sheet investing in, in LGR as well, which would, would tend to do things like the Oxford project, where there are 20, 30, 40 year cash flows um, coming out of it. Those will go into our pension risk transfer business where we take the pensions off the likes of Rolls-Royce and use our pooling of assets. And that becomes, again, a valuable source of change for the UK economy. And the theme through running all, through all of this is we have to change. We have to invest in new real assets. If you take even the FTSE 100 today, the FTSE 100 in 1999 was 7,000. Today it's 6,500. So... Even though we've had tremendous, you know, success in lots of different different areas, that's not reflected in the data. And too much of what we've been doing has been underinvesting in the economy. We're all about increasing the investment in the economy to drive better returns and better societal outcomes at, at the right at the same time. And we think that's doable. Offshore wind is another fantastic example of that. We got a lot of money out of a lot of, of, of good out of the North Sea from the oil that we had there, but we, we didn't actually capitalise on that. We've been given a second bite because of offshore wind. The North Sea is perfect. It's very shallow with very predictable winds, ideal for producing low-cost uh, low cost energy. But we have to be world leaders in that. And that's, again, about firms like ours really stepping up to invest 
and new business opportunities around the EV car industry. And I mentioned PodPoint earlier, renewable energy. Mm. We're big investors in offshore, onshore, and 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 solar. We, you know, we, we all have to change, and we all have to innovate, and we all have to try and work together in producing great, great outcomes from a society point of view. I think it's just brilliant that you use the balance sheet as that early stage investment that can then um, sort of feed into or scale up businesses and technology to a point where LGEM can then invest. Um, And it it really feels like that early stage pool of capital that you're providing through LGC is where there's a gap right now. Um, I don't know if you sort of share that, but do you have a sense of how we could crowd in more to that pool that, you know, perhaps private equity might be a natural fit for but doesn't have the appetite for the long-term investment needed um you mentioned pension risk transfer premiums as one as one potential source and uh, we also have the national infrastructure bank setting up and i wondered if you had any thoughts on on the role that might play also in this de-risking capital or um this this gap in pipeline building capital yes. yeah, it's, it's the duration of things we know the liabilities are there here's a better way of producing assets to back those liabilities the really, really good news is the government gets it, the regulators get it, and therefore it's only getting the right people in the right room to deliver the right outcome that's required right right now. And I'm quite confident that that's what's going to happen, and we'll scale that up you know, through the power of pensions, but also by making the UK a really attractive place to invest. And you know, we've got great universities, some world-leading universities, we've got brilliant towns of the UK, and we've got the mayors and chief executives of council who are very visionary, practical, pragmatic, but visionary, really want to make a difference. As you saw on your trip around the UK with my mm. colleagues, seeing what was happening in different uh, different areas. But until you see it and you, you walk around and talk to people who are engaged in it, you don't realise just how much, how transformational it is and how exciting it is for people. Yeah, it's so true. Um, finance feels so intangible at times, especially how it flows at a local level. And when you actually see the projects on the ground and how that's changing lives and cities and and the passion of the people engaged um, in making sure that flow of capital is happening, it it really shows you the importance, I think, of that local level engagement of finance. And I remember you telling me that in the early days when you went in to meet with local authorities and talk to them about investing, you were met with sort of a bit of confusion. (laughs) You know, why do we have this very large private investor and pension fund manager here talking to us. Can you share a bit more with us on why we need more of that collaboration with you know, the large global investment and then local solutions? On the whole, people want to do good things and make good things happen. Mm-hmm. And if you are the mayor or the chief executive of the council and you, 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 you know you're going to live there for 20, 30, 40 years, you have a 20, 30, 40 year perspective on stuff. You don't get that often from government departments because whoever's the minister changes every you know year, two years, 18 months, and they're very short-lived jobs. And that thing about positive, constructive collaboration, making a difference is true. And therefore, people are signing up to be part of that right across the UK. Yeah. But, I mean, you feel like a bit of a, I was a lone wolf, but you feel like, <laughs> to me, one of, there aren't many of you actually going in on the local level and sitting down with local authorities and saying, okay, what do you, what do you need to do? And let's see if we can help channel private finance in there. I mean, is, is that your sense too? Or maybe I'm just blinded? Well, it's, it's slightly my sense, my sense too, at times. But, <laughs> but, you know, we have a big balance sheet, so we can do a lot. And we thought others would join us. And it 
it is it's actually great that that the you know this government is going to promote leveling up build back better and that you know the 10 points on climate change all of which we're supportive of and we've been at these mm-hmm. for at least 10 10 years or or more but it's it's always struck me as a bit odd why more people haven't done it when it's been a successful business model for us for quite a long period of uh, of time and it's not as if you know, we're not short of regeneration opportunities. We know that there's massive transformations in in technology. There's wonderful opportunities in, in improving urban transportation. You know, there's if if in, if you like me, visit cities around the world all the time and have done for many years. You you see ideas. You know, whether that's uh, a garden space, the way they've reorganised the health system, but you know how they, the university and local businesses collaborate. Then you just, you know, to be honest, steal some of those ideas and try and package them together. And so far, so good on this. But there's so much more we need to do. Indeed, indeed. Um, well, finally, Nigel, on this last point of a lot more to do, you've always been incredibly positive about the future of the UK. Um, and you were bullish on the UK, even with Brexit. Is is that still the case? Are you still optimistic? Well, I think people give you optimism at the end of the day. And that going back to this positive constructive collaboration if we could now bring in central government and our regulators we you know we've got wonderful opportunities in 2021 to just nudge things nobody's asking for transformational change it's just nudging because you know the uk is a very special place brilliant universities enthusiastic entrepreneurs right throughout the the country it's a small country so the the costs of getting around are very very low um there's wonderful towns and cities which just need nudging and upgrading and all of the technology exists right now a lot of the technology sits here in the in the uk anyway and it's you know it literally is a once in a lifetime opportunity as we come out of the pandemic to use the you know the literally five six trillion pounds that we've got in predominantly pensions in the uk to really make a difference Mm. It's so nice to hear your positivity about uh, about the people and the opportunity in the UK as well. Uh, but great points. And, and thanks again, Nigel, for spending time with us today. Um, before you go, we, we have some questions that we like to ask every guest before they leave. Just a quick fire round. The first is, what are we not talking about enough of when it comes to financing the transition to net zero or Build Back Better? I think we've got too much emphasis on pledging and not enough on outcomes. We need to, you know, step up and really make a difference in creating industries where people can see the physical assets being made. People are talking about the jobs that come as a consequence of that. More doing. Yeah, more, more doing, do. more doing. We're doers, we're doers, <laughs> not, not pledges. I can think of many things that you do, but can you share one thing you do outside of work that's uh, supportive of a sustainable future for our planet? Anything that you would like to do? Well, I'm a great walker. In one of those things, I you know, I I don't drive very well. Drive. I use public transport pretty much all all of uh, all of the time. But I encourage people to go walking with me all the time, where we can have a de- debate and a discussion. And that can be urban walking as well as rural walking. And I think you know, if people spend a bit more time thinking about you know where we live and how we live, and I think you can do that if you're walking around with people because it's easy to illustrate things from a physical point of view. I love this. Well, I think we should move away eventually from Zoom meetings, away from standing desks even, to walking yes. meetings and walking <laughs> work. Very good. Um, <laughs> um, uh, can you share one thing that you read recently that has given you a sense of optimism? 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting that because there's so many books which go on about the horrible things that are going on in the world. I mean, there are a couple of books that I think are, are very good. There's one called Factfulness, which is the Hans Rosling book. It's really how, how we should think about the world in a much more positive way by recognizing the very long term trends that are happening and realizing that we're at a point of inflection and we should look at um, how we can make things better. And, and, and on a similar theme, there's a book by Steve Pinkner called Enlightenment Now, which is very similar, but a bit more philosophical. And, you know, the situation isn't so dire that we, we can't sort of pivot and do a better job going forward because the long-term trends has been that we've been able to pivot, whether it's after the war or it's in the 60s when we made massive changes to social mobility and housing and those things. And I think we have another time to pivot. And th these two books are very inspirational in terms of getting people to think how we can pivot and really make a difference. And that's what we want to do as a firm. Oh, fantastic. You said Enlightenment Now and the other one was Factfulness? Factfulness, yes. And then finally, um, given, you know, we have COP coming up uh, in November, I'm sure no one's forgetting. What, is there anything on your COP wish list for this year? Well, I think, again, it's, it's, this is another one about talking versus doing. You know, what is it that everybody's actually going to sign up to do and over a relatively short short time period? And that's very much the, the message we've been given the government and Mark Carney. And, and I think Mark and I agree that, you know, Climate change is the biggest investment opportunity in the world, in our lifetime, probably. Technology and science is the most transformational and exciting it's ever been. We've got to put all of these long-term trends together and really go out to make a difference. And it's not about point scoring politically. It's actually delivering outcomes that will really make a difference to people's lives. And viewing climate change as a wonderful, exciting investment opportunity and not something that's a box-ticking exercise and a pledging exercise and an exercise where it's not on my watch, so I'll just carry it for a while until I can pass it to somebody else's watch. You know, it's sticking your hand up, being responsible, being accountable and doing things. Brilliant. More doing, less pledging. Love it. Um, well, it's an absolute pleasure as always, Nigel, and we can't thank you enough for joining us today to share the incredible work you and your colleagues are doing um, and really look forward to following you over the year ahead and, and maybe taking you up on one of these walks. Super. And a big thank you to those of you listening to Green is the New Finance. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Nigel. And I'll be back in two weeks with my colleague Ryan Jude, where we'll be sitting down with Hannah Dillon at the Zero Carbon Campaign and talking about carbon pricing. What is it? Why do we need it? And what will its impact be on us? So see you then. Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media.